That's so reassuring to know. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity we have today to reflect on the words of Jesus and indeed the teaching of Jesus. Uh, thank you for the amazing privilege that his teaching has been preserved for us in the New Testament. And we thank you also for the help of your spirit in understanding what Jesus says and seeing how it applies to our lives today. So please we pray, may your word be living and active in us and amongst us this morning. And may it speak to our hearts and encourage us to run the race of life uh, faithfully uh, with our eyes fixed on the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. Amen. Well, here in Australia, we're quite familiar, of course, with the hazards of bushfires, all too painfully familiar. And we do uh, have these uh, promotions and campaigns, of course, to get ready, uh, prepare for that day when the bushfire comes. Uh, amongst other things which the RFS advises us to do is to uh, prepare your home. They say this, a well-prepared home is more likely to survive a bushfire. Even if your plan is to leave early, the more you prepare your home, the more likely it will be to survive. Be prepared. Uh, other piece of advice uh, which enables us to be ready, make a bushfire survival plan. Uh, thirdly, know the bushfire alert levels. And fourthly, keep bushfire information websites to hand. Well, it is important to be ready, is it not? It could be a matter of life or death, or property survival, or property destruction. Well, being ready is the repeated call of this passage today. Uh, did you notice uh, verse 35? Uh, be dressed and ready for service. Verse 38. It will be good for those servants whose masters find them ready. Uh, verse 40, uh, you must also be ready. Uh, of course, it's not to be ready for a bushfire, but something far more significant at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, how much more important to be ready for the return of Christ, because that is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Uh, it's the difference between grievous loss and ginormous benefit. It's the joy of a life acknowledged by Christ as faithfully well-lived, or the dismay of a life censured by Christ as unfaithfully misused. Uh, Jesus repeatedly challenged people to be ready for his return. Now, his favorite teaching tool was a story of a master going away and leaving servants in charge. And the climax of the story was, of course, the unexpected return of the master. But time and time again, in these stories that Jesus told, he chose a certain time of day for when the master returns. Do you know when that is? Nighttime, exactly. Uh, we can see it here in this passage, uh, in verse 36, he talks of keeping your lamps burning, which is, of course, a necessity at night time. Uh, verse 38, more specifically, he warns that the master may return in the second or third watch of the night. Here's the question. Why does Jesus repeatedly have the masters in his stories returning in the night? Well, as I look at some of you now, uh, his teaching point is becoming even clearer to me. It's the danger of becoming sleepy. 
Jesus is warning us of the real danger of becoming sleepy Christians. Uh, what happens when we become sleepy? Uh, we start to lose touch with reality. Our eyelids start to get heavy and we start to drift away into another world. Now, of course, the RTA is constantly reminding us of the danger of sleepiness while driving. Uh, drive a reviver. Take a break. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Uh, if we do, of course, we're losing touch with reality. And it may only be for a microsecond, but on a road, that, can, that lapse can be catastrophic. And such is the danger for those who are trusting in Christ. We become sleepy. We fall asleep behind the wheel. And we lose touch with eternal realities. And our focus on eternity starts to slip away. So, uh, Jesus issues this challenge to all who would follow him. Verse 35. Be dressed ready for service and keeping your lamps burning like men waiting for their master return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Now, a bit of helpful cultural background for you. Uh, in those days, a wedding banquet wasn't just a an hour or two's uh, banquet on the day, it usually lasted for up to a week. So the master could be away for up to a week. So there was the, uh, the challenge. Imagine that catering bill. Scary thought. So the challenge for the servants was, be ready for when the master comes back. He may return from the banquet at any time. Now seven, several reasons are given in this passage for being ready. Uh, they're all future-orientated. They all look ahead to what happens when the Master returns, that is Christ. Uh, these reasons to be ready uh, function a bit like a driver reviver. Uh, they're designed to cause us to wake up, uh, to help us to get back in touch with the reality. Uh, they cause us to pause in the present and to evaluate our lives against that future day. Now, what we're going to see is uh, some of the reasons given are positive. Uh, they speak of celebration, commendation, and reward for the faithful. But some reasons to be ready are negative. They point to the awful consequences of not being ready. Now, in verse 37, uh, we're given a positive reason to be ready, the prospect of a great celebration with Jesus. Verse 37, uh, it will be good for those servants whose masters finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Uh, it will be good for those servants whose masters finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. Do you think Jesus is being a bit humorous there? Uh, it will be good, repeated twice, a bit of an understatement, don't you think? Uh, he's trying to make a point. Uh, take the most joyous situation you've ever experienced in life and multiply it by 100,000. Uh, it will be good on that day. It will be a day of great joy. What is the picture? Uh, it's one of reclining at a table. It's a picture of celebration. Uh, when Jesus returns, the work will be over. For those who are ready, it will be a time to feast. 
when Jesus returns, the waiting will be over. The time for faithful service in his absence will have passed. Uh, This meal idea conveys the sense of rich fellowship together with Jesus, and it is a heartwarming prospect. But did you notice the big surprise? The master serves the servants. What? The almighty creator humbly serving the creature? It sounds utterly bizarre. But then, of course, that is the nature of the gospel we believe. It's the shock of Jesus serving his disciples as he washes their feet. It's the shock of Jesus serving us by sacrificing his life. On that final day when Jesus returns at the great feast of the kingdom, Jesus will serve us. You see, this is the counterintuitive wonder of the gospel. Jesus is the servant king. Nobody really could ever make this up, could they? It is the gospel. It is God's thinking and God's plan. So, uh, what we see next is that being ready is not easy because it requires constant vigilance. Uh, For the date and hour of Christ's return is unknown. It will come at a time when we least expect. Verse 39. Uh, But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Constant vigilance is difficult. It is easy to become sleepy Christians. Uh, The change of metaphor from master to a thief uh, introduced this possibility of loss and regret. Uh, It catches Peter's attention. Uh, Hang on, Jesus. Who are you talking about? Look at verse 41. Uh, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? That's a good question. And from what follows, it becomes evident that Jesus is talking to those who say that they follow him. Of course, the most fundamental aspect of being ready for Jesus is to have placed our trust in Jesus. If we haven't made our peace with God through Christ now, we will be banished from God when Christ returns. But it seems that here, Jesus is now addressing those who claim to be trusting him and following him. Uh, Notice that the theme of stewardship is expanded and evaluated. And of course we know, don't we? Uh, Christians are stewards who are called to live faithfully in Christ's absence as they wait for his return. So I think we can say Jesus is addressing those who would see themselves as Christians. Specifically, he's not talking to humanity generally. And what we're going to see is this. Four different types of Christians are presented. And for each, the final outcome of their stewardship, whether faithful or unfaithful, is explored. So firstly, we see the consistently faithful. Verse 42. uh, The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants, to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds 
doing so when he returns. Well, at the very least, clearly this would apply to Christian leaders who have been entrusted with responsibility to look after God's people. However, it doesn't stop there. For we know that every follower of Jesus has been entrusted with the gospel and with gifts, with time and with talents, with resources and with responsibilities. And on Christ's return, Christians who have lived lives of faithful service and love will be rewarded. The image is one of promotion. Look at verse 44. I tell you the truth. He will be put him in charge of all his possessions. When I read this, my mind goes to the parable of the ten miners where the faithful servant is put in charge of whole cities on his master's return. We don't know exactly what this means, but in the new creation, it seems that those who have been faithful will be rewarded with greater honour and greater responsibilities. But Jesus then moves on to give a second scenario that is dramatically different to the first. If the first was the consistently faithful servant, we now see the totally unfaithful servant. This is the servant who does the absolute opposite of what his master has commanded, verse 45. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. Uh, there is a long delay in the return of the master. And of course, we can relate to that. It's been 2,000 years already. And this servant seems to start well, but because of the long delay, he starts to lose touch with reality. He becomes sleepy. He lives for the moment, and he loses sight of the master's return, and he grows cavalier. Uh, This wasn't his behavior all along, but there comes a point where, because of the delay, his behavior deteriorates. Jesus actually says he then begins to beat the men's servants. Uh, Instead of caring for others, he abuses others. Rather than being a good steward of the resources entrusted to him by using them to serve others, he squanders them on himself. And yet, of course, his master does return. And he returns at an unexpected hour, just like the thief. And when he does, rather than reward, there is severe judgment. Verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. This person had seemed to be a true servant of Christ, yet his conduct said otherwise. He had no desire to do the master's will. In fact, he desired and decided to do the very opposite. For this servant, it seems there was no heart reality And on Christ's return, his true colors are revealed and his true identity is declared. He is assigned a place with the unbelievers. Sadly, we see plenty of examples of people who claim to be Christians going rogue. 
Uh, some are in positions of Christian leadership. But their day of reckoning will come. Jesus then goes on to elaborate two other degrees of stewardly unfaithfulness. Uh, thirdly, uh, the disobedient with knowledge. Uh, this servant is a poor steward uh, through willful inactivity. He knows what his master wants him to do, and yet he just doesn't do it. Uh, he is disobedient with knowledge. Look at verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Now the note, his punishment, is not banishment but a beating. Uh, maybe the blows are verbal uh, in the sense of rebuke, we're not told. Uh, this servant would represent Christians who know and sense the challenge of what Christ calls them to do but never does it. Uh, they know, but they remain inactive. For them, uh, there is a stern rebuke. Uh, this reminds me of the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about uh, those who build on the foundation of Christ with the materials that are then tested on Christ's return. Uh, here it is in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 14. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. I think it's talking about those who are disobedient with knowledge. But the final example is the servant who is a poor steward uh, through ignorant inactivity. Uh, he's poorly taught. He is fuzzy on what the master requires of him and doesn't do what the master wants him to do. Verse 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. This servant would seem to represent Christians whose inactivity is due to them being very immature in the faith or poorly taught in the faith. And for them, Christ blows and rebuke is lesser. And then the section concludes with this underlying principle the more a servant knows about what the master requires, the more serious his sin for failing to obey, and the more strict will be his punishment. Verse 48 continues. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In conclusion, for those who are trusting Christ, it is wise to evaluate our stewardship of what we have been given. How am I being trustworthy with the gospel Bible teaching that I've been given? Because I've been given so much. How am I utilizing the gifts and abilities that I have been given in the service and love of others? How am I using my time and resources that I've been given for the kingdom of God? At the end of the day, I think we are all in the same boat, aren't we? Much has been given to us, and therefore much will be required of us. Now, as we've seen in previous weeks in Luke, will we use our wealth to care for the needy? 
Will our treasure and our hearts be in heaven? Will we put God's kingdom first and trust him to provide what we need? Because we see in Scripture that God will richly reward the faithful. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's spur one another on so that we don't become sleepy Christians. Let's talk together about how we can encourage each other to live in the light of these eternal realities. I'm going to pray for us now and then I'll open up for questions or comments. Heavenly Father, please we pray. Help us to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. Help us not to become sleepy in your service. Help us to keep in touch with the eternal realities and particularly the return of Christ. And may that focus particularly encourage us and spur us on to keep running the race faithfully in your service. Amen.